Hello, you're listening to an episode of Trade Talks, a podcast about the economics of trade policy. I'm Samaya Keynes, the US Economics and Trade Editor for The Economist. And I'm Chad Bown, a senior fellow with the Peterson Institute for International Economics. This episode is about the Russia investigation. The other Russia investigation. And it's about the history of one of the weakest spots in the global trading system, the national security exception. This has been in the news because a few countries have been justifying their trade restrictions on the grounds of national security. The Trump administration has used that defense for its tariffs on steel and aluminium. The Saudis have been using it to justify trade restrictions against Qatar. And Russia used it after it banned Ukrainian products from coming into the country. On April the 5th, a panel of World Trade Organization judges actually ruled on that case. We'll be joined by Mona Pinches Paulson. Mona's the Emile Noel Fellow at the Jean Monnet Center at New York University. She has a PhD in international economic law. She's a historian, an archivist, and she's going to take us through the history of national security and trade. Imagine that the global trading system is like a really fun game. Except you can get a little advantage by giving someone else a teeny tiny kick. And the danger of the system is that if everyone starts giving everyone else a little teeny tiny kick, then you can get fights and they can spiral out of control. So there's a rule, which is no kicking. And there's a referee to complain to if someone breaks this rule. However, there is an exception. If one of the players goes completely crazy, then you can kick them out of self-defense. So in this game, obviously that opens up this massive loophole because everyone could just start kicking each other, claiming that they really had to because the other guy's gone crazy. And with everyone kicking each other, you get all these fights and no one can have any fun. In the real game of the global trading system, this kicking happens when you apply trade restrictions on other countries. And the referees, well, they're the judges of the World Trade Organization. And there's a special exemption, though, for these extreme cases, like in times of war, then you can actually apply trade restrictions. The reason we're recording this episode is that recently there have been some concerns that a few members of the trading system are trying to ruin the fun. There are several cases of members of the World Trade Organization trying to use this exception, applying trade restrictions and then justifying them on the grounds of national security. And we'll get into some of the details on, on these cases later, but all of them relate to what is at the heart of one of the toughest issues of the WTO, which is national sovereignty. Where are the limits when it comes to obeying international rules? For the system to be sustainable, you need escape clauses. You need something that gives countries the flexibility when extreme circumstances come up. Otherwise, being part of the system will involve giving up too much national sovereignty. But you also can't give countries too much flexibility by creating these massive loopholes. Otherwise, it just becomes too easy to cheat, and the system ultimately becomes meaningless. Now, obviously, the, the question of where that line should be is, is a deep philosophical question. And, and wherever you decide where that line is, you then have to write it down in a clear set of trade rules. So you need to spell out first, when do you actually get to trigger this exception? When is it okay to give another player that little kick? And second, who gets to decide whether you broke the rules? Is it okay for the referee to be the one to pass judgment on whether that kick was okay? Or should that only be up to you? 
The current version of the national security exception in the international rules goes something like this. Nothing in this agreement shall be construed to prevent any member from taking any action which it considers necessary for the protection of its essential security interests. Translation. Nothing in this agreement should stop a member doing something it thinks is necessary for national security as long as they fall in the following three subcategories. 1. Relating to fissionable materials or the materials from which they are derived. Translation. If it relates to nuclear stuff. 2. Relating to the traffic in arms, ammunition and implements of war and to such traffic and other goods and materials as is carried on directly or indirectly for the purpose of supplying a military establishment. Translation. If it relates to weapons stuff. Or 3. Taken in time of war or other emergency in international relations. Translation. If you're in a war. So the exception sets out when trade restrictions are allowed, in times of war, if it relates to nuclear materials, or if it relates to weapons. And the it considers part, well, that's really important. That's the part that says nothing is going to stop any member from doing something when it considers it necessary to protect its own national security. It's worth remembering at this point just how the system works and and reminding people that the WTO can't force anyone to do anything. The the worst the WTO can do is authorize another member to retaliate if the WTO decides that there has been rule breaking. They can't physically stop a member from kicking another member. So that's how it works when there's normal rule breaking. And when it comes to these special cases where countries say that they had to apply trade restrictions because of national security reasons, there they may argue for even looser limits or an even weaker framework for making members stick to the rules. Here's Mona on the arguments countries make after they impose a trade restriction in the name of national security. So there are two very closely related arguments that are to be made here. So one is that the state or the country can say that the provision that's under the WTO rules is self-judging. By self-judging, what they mean is that they get to decide how the exception applies to their measures, to what they're doing. The other part of that, and it's very closely tied to that, is the argument that the exception is non-justiciable. And that is just a way of saying that the issue should not be subject to the findings of a WTO panel or the adjudicative system. The Americans, with their Section 232 tariffs on steel and aluminium, and the Russians with their actions against Ukraine... They've both claimed that the use of this exception is both self-judging and non-justiciable. So they're basically saying that it's not a place of the WTO judges to decide over rule-breaking. They would be ruling over a political issue, not a legal one. The fact that folks today might be using these arguments would have been no surprise to the people who designed the system back in the 1940s. National security was on the negotiators' minds during this period in the 1940s, World War II had just finished, and there were these ongoing tensions with the Soviet Union. Going back to the 1940s and how these negotiators were thinking, that that can be useful. Thinking about the arguments being made back then can give us an idea of how to interpret the rules now. And so back then, countries were trying to form something called the International Trade Organization, or the ITO. 
The ITO never ended up getting agreed, but a lot of the language made it into the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, or the GATT. And those were the trading rules that eventually turned into the World Trade Organization, the WTO, in 1995. And the language and the national security exception, thats it's basically the same in all three. So it's the ITO negotiations that we really need to pay attention to. Here's Mona on what the ITO was. The International Trade Organization, also known as the ITO, was designed and organized um, during the Second World War, and it was a product of predominantly Anglo-American discussions at the time. It was seen as sort of the third leg to a stool that was also looking at the monetary policies of the governments and how they would address currency and a lot of issues that had to do with how to restore the global economy after the Second World War. So the other institutions that were created in 1944 were essentially the IMF and the World Bank. And the ITO was always seen as the third part of that, which was helping governments understand how to regulate trade and This was related to the idea, particularly by several uh, United States government officials, Cordell Hall being the Secretary of State that sort of at the time set this example that interdependence and stability with trade will lead to peace. Often in negotiations, there are really heated debates between different member countries, maybe between the Americans and the Brits. But in this case, one of the toughest debates was actually within the American government at the time. The U.S. was not this single entity or monolithic blob. My historical research tells a story about how within the United States government, there were different perceptions about the idea of international trade rules. So you had the war and Navy departments Air Forces, they were called the services departments by other government officials, that saw the post-war system as one that required protectionism to be able to protect U.S. national security interests. And that's that's their perception and point of view when they approached foreign economic policy. So on the one hand, you have military-minded people who wanted free reign to impose trade restrictions in the name of national security. They wanted to be able to protect strategic domestic industries. They wanted the ability to apply export controls to stop enemies from getting their hands on scary things like the ingredients to make a nuclear bomb. And they wanted broad language in the exceptions in case the technology moved on. They were probably concerned about writing down rules only covering fissionable materials, only to have some mad scientist come along and make the world's biggest next security threat come from something else entirely. Basically for them, National security was the rule. Free trade was the exception. And this was very much the opposite of what the State Department was doing at the time. That's the hawkish services department who see trade barriers as defenses for America's national interests. But on the other side, you have the U.S. State Department. They're led by Cordell Hull, who is the Secretary of State until 1944. And, and he has this big idea that free trade would help to generate peace after the Second World War. The State Department at the time, particularly those that supported the Cordell Hall idea that free trade would help to generate peace after the Second World War, William Clayton 
was sort of the head of this. And while he was negotiating the Marshall, what would become the Marshall Plan and working on the ground for that, he also was in charge of the team of U.S. delegates that were going to negotiate what would become the ITO charter. They were under the understanding that a non-discriminatory trade multilateral legal system was actually good for national security because it meant that all of the states were interdependent and then were working together and also would allow them to gain access to goods and materials that they needed to be able to complete their national security objectives. So there was a lot of advantage to completing the ITO charter and to developing these rules with the other countries. The folks at the State Department who were leading the U.S. delegation when negotiating this ITO charter, they wanted narrower language that would be more limiting on when you could use national security to justify trade restrictions. Looking at the internal history between the Services Department and the State Department, the U.S. delegation in this case that was there to negotiate the ITO charter, one of the big issues that came up was that the Services Department wanted to create broad an inequivocal language that would have shown that the United States would be able to decide for itself when it was necessary to take measures in the name of national security, and that this would not be held to the dispute settlement procedures otherwise within the charter. So just to completely exclude everything related to national security. The U.S. delegation strongly opposed this proposal, and they sought instead to show how national security could still be an important exception, but within the structures, so that way there wouldn't be such a broad unilateral interpretation part to the exception. And this was largely because they were concerned that other governments would then try to make all of their protectionist measures fall under a national security exception. So that was this internal disagreement. And and ultimately, they ended up with pretty much the language that we have today. But as a non-lawyer, it's not entirely obvious who won. There is this language it considers, which suggests that members themselves can judge when an action is necessary. But there's also some clear criteria laid out for when you can invoke this exception. And Mona, in her archival work, found some evidence of what the American delegation thought at the time. The U.S. delegation prepared for what they thought would be congressional hearings of the ITO charter, and they prepared hypothetical questions they thought the U.S. Congress would ask them. One of them was, is the national security exception subject to review by the International Trade Organization, the ITO, or the World Court? In answer to that question, The U.S. delegation said that whether or not a measure was necessary for national security interests is not subject to review. Whether or not the measure falls under one of the subparagraphs of the national security exception, so for example, whether it was taken in time of war or emergency, other emergency in international relations, would be subject to review. And that factual question would be something that the organization could become involved with if another member objected to the national security measure. And because there was also a provision that allowed the World Court to come in if there was a legal question, then that also would bring the World Court in if necessary. So it sounds like they meant for the judges of the trading system to have some kind of role. They're very aware that the U.S. Congress is reviewing 
what they're talking about and what they're doing. And they obviously had to win the U.S. Congress over to get the ITO to work. And so I think, I think that it's very telling that in their preparation of these questions, they still don't say, of course, if it's a national security measure, you get to get out of the charter rules. They even acknowledge within their preparation for the Congress, there will be some, you know, some requirements here where you're going to have to possibly face the organization or the world court. And I think that's really important and it's missing from the discussion. And, and even with the internal debates that are, that are caught up, it's very clear that the U.S. delegation does not simply want to have the kind of exception that the current United States administration is asking for. And that's entirely what this entire internal debate shows, that national security was not, was not meant to be used in this way. This all happened in the late 1940s, and it seems pretty clear that the U.S. delegation didn't have in mind a completely unlimited national security exception. But it's always been a bit unclear how exactly it works, because there just haven't been any cases where the exception has really been tested legally. There are some examples where countries invoked Article 21, the national security exception, to justify their new trade restrictions under the GATT. It got invoked during the Falklands War between the UK and Argentina in 1982, and also when the US claimed to be fighting communism in Nicaragua in 1985. But the important thing is that although there were these claims, none of them actually led to a panel of judges ruling on a case. There was one that got quite close in the mid-1990s when the EU disputed something the US had done in Cuba, but the US and the EU ended up settling it diplomatically without forcing a WTO panel to rule on whether the policy was justified. So April 5th, 2019 was a really big deal. The WTO issued its first ever panel ruling on a country's use of the national security exception. It related to this dispute we mentioned right at the beginning, the one involving Russia and Ukraine. So back in 2014, Russia and the Ukraine started fighting each other and, and really fighting each other. Amongst other things, Russia annexed Crimea, which was part of the Ukraine. Russia banned a lot of Ukrainian goods from coming into the country. It even banned a lot of Ukrainian goods that were simply flowing through Russia, trying to get to some other foreign market. In 2017, Ukraine filed a formal WTO dispute against Russia's trading barriers. And then Russia invoked Article 21, saying that it was defending its national security and therefore the trade restrictions were justified. And, and the part it was using was that these restrictions were imposed in a time of war or other emergency in international relations. The other big argument that Russia makes here is when it says that Article 21 is totally self-judging. Going back to the language that Mona told us about coming from the beginnings of the trading system in the 1940s, this is Russia saying, basically, I can choose to do whatever I want. Interestingly... Other governments are allowed to weigh in when it comes to these cases. And the Trump administration decided to side with the Russians and argue that the case was non-justiciable. So after Article 21 had been invoked, the WTO lawyers had no role in considering whether the trade restrictions were justified. And so on April 5th, we get the WTO ruling, the first ever WTO ruling on an Article 21 exception. And the WTO rejects this Russian argument that the exception is totally self-judging. 
and they also reject the U.S.'s supporting argument that it was non-justiciable. The WTO panel says that it actually had to look and see if the conditions of Article 21 were actually satisfied. And so which category does the action fall into? Is it fissionable materials? Does it relate to weapons? So the panel does side with Russia to an extent. They they do throw out some of their assertions. They say, no, sorry, guys, we do have a role in deciding you know, whether a triggering of this exception is okay. But they also find that in this case, it was okay. Because they find that, yes, the actions were taken in time of war or other emergency in international relations, one of those subsections of the exception. So essentially, it's a legit triggering of the exception. They do say that had this not happened in this exceptional circumstance, then Russia's actions would definitely have broken the normal trading rules. But again, it falls under the exception. So in the speak of the game from before, they found that Russia couldn't just decide for itself when the kicking was okay. And they found that Russia did kick the Ukraine. But they found that yeah, it was one of these extreme circumstances when countries could kick in self-defense. We asked Mona, if you had to put yourself back in time, how would the U.S. delegation in the 1940s have viewed what the WTO panel said in this Russia-Ukraine dispute? So they, the U.S. delegation actually is very much aligned with what the panel said in this case of splitting up having sort of an, a subjective part, looking at the fact that whether or not a state considers its measures necessary for national security, and a second part where they look at whether or not there was an objective test. If today's WTO panel is aligned with what the original U.S. interpretation was in the 1940s, it's clearly not aligned with what the Trump administration says now. And and that means that there could be a conflict coming because WTO judges are currently considering a complaint from lots of other members of the World Trade Organization on the American tariffs on steel and aluminium these American trade restrictions in the name of national security. The Americans presumably are going to use similar arguments, saying this is a political matter, the WTO judges should not be ruling on this. But if you follow the logic of this case, the the Russia-Ukraine case, then the Americans are going to have to say which part of the exception they're going to appeal to if they want to use this national security exception. Do these tariffs on steel and aluminium relate to fissionable materials? Does this relate to weaponry? I think that some of these might be a bit of a stretch. I agree. And the big political concern here is if a WTO panel rules against President Trump's justification of national security, how is he going to respond? His administration has already created a number of problems for the WTO. Will he do something even worse? Would he pull the United States out of the World Trade Organization? Okay, calm down, Chad. I'm very skeptical that the the president is going to try to pull the U.S. out of the World Trade Organization, or even if he tried, that he would be able to. I think, you know, if he started just applying tariffs willy-nilly on national security grounds, then, then I think Congress would at some point step in and try to restrain his powers. For me, the, the more important thing to be worried about, though, is, is the breakdown of this norm, this norm that you really shouldn't invoke this national security exception in vain. 
because it's going to be really hard to to go back to this old world, the pre-Trump world, in which it was really the US that was warning other countries not to use this exception. Now it's pretty tough for the US to, to tell the likes of India or China, you can't use this exception because they themselves have flouted this rule. And obviously the Trump administration with their national security tariffs have put the WTO judges in a position that they just shouldn't be put in. It's pretty irresponsible to expect the entire trading system to be able to resolve these types of issues. And on that positive note, uh, that is all for Trade Talks. A huge thank you to Mona Pinchas-Paulson, who is the Emil Noel Fellow at the Jean Monnet Center at New York University. Read her new paper, Trade, Multilateralism and National Security, Antimonies in the History of the International Trade Organization. I think that might be the first time we've used that word on Trade Talks, though I know it's popular amongst the lawyers. And as always, a big thank you to Colin Warren, who takes care of our audio. Thank you to my parents for explaining the national security exception. And do follow us on Twitter. I'm at Samaya Keynes. And I'm at Chad Bown. And we're on at trade underscore underscore talks. That's not one but two underscores, at trade underscore underscore talks. Because when it comes to trade and national security, two disputes are better than one. I feel like these double underscore things are now just a test of whether people have listened to the episode and then they can work out how what you just said makes literally no sense and is completely in contradiction with the main message of the of the episode. There will be a quiz at the end. <laughs>